morning. Good morning. Grab your seat. Good to have you. Uh, before we kind of get into our text, which is 2 Peter chapter 1, I do want to give you a heads up about something that's coming down the pike in the fall. Um, and fall for hope means the weekend after brigade days, so you know that, September 19th. Uh, we're going to, for, for about eight weeks, we're going to do a little thing called community groups. Uh, we're going to keep the sermon at 10 o'clock. We're going to have a little bit of coffee afterwards. Hopefully the preacher doesn't go too long. And then we're going to invite people just to kind of join in groups spread around the church as, as we talk through some of the things that we're studying and talking about as, as the church. Now, one of the things that's going to guide some of our talking is a, is a book by Bill and Kirsty uh, Galtieri, Journey of the Soul. Uh, there'll be more information about this, but this is not required reading, but if you want to read along, it will kind of help flesh out what we're talking about in these groups. Um, and like I say, I'll go for eight weeks. It's, we're, I'm, I'm kind of jokingly calling it the Grace Baptist Church Social Undistancing Plan, where we, let's just admit it, we were bad at relationships. People are bad at relationships anyway, and then we spent a year and a half in our home, so we got even worse. So we're trying to reconnect our body a little bit over that first eight weeks and would love to have you guys take part. There'll be more information coming, but I did want to give you a little bit of a heads up uh, as we get going. We've spent the last several weeks working through 1 Peter. Uh, he's writing to this diverse group of people in, in what's modern-day Turkey. It's mainly Gentiles that he's writing to, uh, and he's reminding them in 1 Peter of these core truths of what uh, they can base their life on, because they're, they're, they're struggling. There's persecution. It's, life is difficult, and he's calling their attention back to these foundational Ideas, a reminder of the fundamentals, the things that you base your life on. That's First Peter. And Second Peter is, is, is written to the same group of people, but it's interesting because it's, it's, as far as we know, the last written letter we have from Peter. He talks about the fact that he knows he's going to die soon. They do not have much longer on the earth. So we're going to look uh, for the next three weeks at Second Peter. We're going to start today with Second Peter 1, uh, 1 to 15. And I'm going to ask Cheyenne to come and read that passage for us. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, 
because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Thanks for reading that, Cheyenne. Um, I want to dig into this text a little bit today, but I want to start with the last part she read um, and to think for a minute about the whole letter and the importance of last words. The importance of last words. When I, I, um, 11 years ago this past March, my dad passed away of cancer, and I knew he was uh, not doing well. And uh, I talked to a mom on the phone in early February, and Angela said, you have to go. And so I went down, and I stayed for about five days at my sister's place where my dad was living with my mom getting treatment. And I just remember every conversation that we had. He didn't talk a lot. He wasn't doing well. But I, I remember, and I remember getting up the last morning, uh, knowing that I was flying back to Canada, knowing that I'd probably never see him alive again on the earth, and just thinking of, what am I going to say? And it, it wasn't anything profound. I said, I love you, Dad. He said, I love you too, son. And that was it. But though, though that week is forever seared in my mind because I knew that, that as far as our earthly existence, those were the last words I was going to have with my dad. And, and you hear Peter in this text saying, my time is short. These are his last words that he's writing to these people. He's putting together his thoughts from a lifetime of following Jesus. He's trying to convey what is really important to them in their situation. Last words are important because they flow from a clarity of experience. You know when your time is short, all of a sudden it clarifies what's important and what's not. We talked about this some in 1 Peter, that he's writing out of his own experience, right? His successes and his failures. Peter is a guy we can identify with because he wanted to do great things and he failed repeatedly, right? His own fears, his own experience of Jesus and, and, and his own experience of the Spirit after Jesus had ascended back to heaven. And because he knows his time is short, Peter's got the clarity to say to them what is really important. And, and he, he realizes that these words are important because they serve as a legacy. He says in verse 15, and I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. He wants these words to live on. And good news, Peter, guess what? <laughs> We're still reading them. We're still looking at them. We're still drawing uh, God's teaching from them. But these are core reminders of what is true. So when, as we go through this whole book, we've got to realize this is really, for Peter, these were important things. For us, they're important things. And he starts, once again, reminding of, the, of these fundamentals, the foundation of God's promise. If you look at the text in the first four verses, just as in the last book, he's reminding them about the core of their identity. In this book, he starts with this foundational truth that he wants them to know. God's promised them some, some very, very specific things. And he says, you have to hold on to these great and precious promises. And first he says, you know what? We only have what we've received. We only have what we've received. Once again, this is echoing some of 1 Peter, that it all starts with what God has done for us, not what we do for God. And he's reminding them of that. He says in verse 1, to those who are through the righteousness of God our, and save, of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith 
as precious as ours. His whole thing, when he defines them, he says, you guys have gotten something, not because you deserved it, but through what Jesus has done for you. What we have is a gift. We only have what we've received. We're not here because we've earned it. It's not our good attempts that move us forward. We've received this faith, he says, through the righteousness, through the actions, through the living life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I can't stress enough how this levels the playing field in the world. If you are a a believer, a follower of Jesus, you are because of a gift, not because you're smarter than anybody else or better than anybody else. So often the church becomes arrogant in our position. And and Peter's saying, you only have what you received. But the good news is, what we have received is enough. And these are the verses that, these are probably some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. You don't have to read them at my funeral because that's Psalm 103, kids. Everybody knows that. Um, But but I love these in verses 3 and 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through, through our knowledge of him and through these great, we have these great and precious promises and, and what it's done, it's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And I talk with people all the time and I feel this way all the time too. I say, I just don't have what it takes spiritually. You ever feel that way? I, I want to do well. I have a desire, but I, I can't seem to, or I'll have a good string of, okay, I'm doing, yeah, okay, this is good. And then boom, all of a sudden I'm, oh, how did I? I've blown it. I keep messing up. I, I, I love this phrase. I'm not a very good Christian. Anybody ever feel that way? I'm not a very good Christian. I'm not very good at it. Well, guess what? It's okay. Because it's what Peter's saying is what you have received as a gift is what makes you the, a Christian. And, and what you have received is enough. It's everything you need for life and godliness, to live and to grow in resemblance to God. And you say, well, why does it not feel that way? He says past tense, it's been given to us, but it doesn't feel that way. Can, that, that should be something people would amen. Right? It doesn't feel like I've got everything I need for life and godliness because I keep failing. And it, then I say, how have we gotten it? And if you go back and read, it says, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. That's how we receive it, through our knowledge of God. Now, it's by knowing God that we get this. And I'm going to come back to this word knowledge here because there's a couple of different uses of the same English word in the passage, and they're different. I want to talk about that. But what this word epigenosco means, it's a relational knowing. It's a, it's a knowing fully, and we'll get back to that. I, I, we all have knowledge about people that we don't know. If you watch the news this morning, you learn knowledge about certain people that you don't actually know. We all have knowledge about people, but this, this word is deeper. It's, it's a knowledge of people, like a relational knowledge. It's, it's more like the knowledge that I have of my own family, of my wife. It's, it's knowing, not knowing about, but knowing in a, in a relational connection. And, and I'll get back to that, because I want to I dig in on that. That's really important, and we'll, talk, we'll focus more at the end on that. But, but what this knowledge, relational knowing of God leads to is an invitation to participation. It says in, in the second part of verse 4, Through our knowing of him, we have received these great and precious promises. Once again, we're receiving here. And what do they do for us? It says these great and precious promises that we've received through our knowledge, through our relationship, knowing of God, they do two things for us. First, we may participate in the divine nature. 
We're called to, that word participate actually means to share or, or to be one who joins in with. So what this is actually saying is when we know God, and this is past tense, he's given us this, when we know God, we have this opportunity to share in the divine nature. Now, that's a hard one for us because we're, we're logical and rational. How do you share in someone else's nature or in the divine nature? Jeff, this sounds a little floofy, getting a little weird out there. But what this really means, and I, I'll say this with all the reverence I can, we can actually become one with God. Now, we, we don't get that because we, we, we live in this world that is, uh, especially in North America, where we're individuals. It's very individualistic. And we see ourselves as these buffered units. This is just us. This is me. And I have a relationship with people. But to become one with them, is, 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 that's unusual. And yet it's a very biblical idea. I, I've used this, uh, this icon uh, before in 1 John. Rublev's icon, it's, it's, he's painting the three visitors that come to see Abraham. But the church has used it for, for hundreds of years to teach about the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If you look, all the faces are the same. It's one God sitting. And I love the fact that they're sitting around a table and there's an open spot where I can come in. And that this life that flows from the Father to the Son to the Spirit to the Father to the Son to the Spirit, what they're saying is I can actually become a, a, a place where that passes, where that comes through me. I, I can participate in that divine nature. Once again, it's, it's, it's kind of an ethereal concept because our world is individualized. We see me and we see you and we don't see us interconnecting other than our conversations, right? We don't really understand this idea of sharing a nature. But, but one, one way that I can give you to, to kind of maybe understand this is, is family. And I, some of your parents and grandparents and husbands and wives and some of your children but when, when you're connected, well, I guess you're all those things. It's not some of you are those things. I'm just trying to think who didn't qualify on that. Everybody is one of those things. Um, one of the things that you learn quickly as a parent is that when your child suffers, you feel it. You feel it, and it doesn't go away. They get old and move out, and you still feel it if they suffer, right? Or if someone, you know, a parent, or we have that connection. There's something there that connects us that's deeper than just me being one person and my child being another person. There's, there's a shared relationship, a, a nature that ties us together there. And what, what he's saying is this gift of God enables us to move into a relationship with God where that life that he has actually flows through us. And like I say, I'll get more to that at the end. But, but these two things, it says that these great and precious promises allows us to participate in the divine nature and to do something else, to escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires, to actually change behaviors and to change that at the level of desire. You see, that's the thing. Our desires drive our behaviors. I've always known that, that if I'm going to eat healthy food at that moment that I have a choice between steamed broccoli and chocolate cake, my desire at that moment is going to drive the boat. Right? If, I'm, if I'm desiring to be healthy, I'll eat the broccoli, if I'm, and that might happen once a century or something like that. If I desire to have chocolate cake, my desire, that's where our actions come out of. And he says, this, this participating in the divine nature is going to help you escape the corruption that comes from sinful desires. Peter says, when you start participating in the divine nature, when the life of God starts flowing through you, all of a sudden, your life is driving with a different engine. 
The life of God is what begins to shape your choices and your habits and your actions because the desires, these sinful desires of the world have led you down this path to a place where, you, where you're empty, where, you, where you'll die eventually. It just, it kills us. But he says, because of these great and precious promises of God, because of this gift that you've been given, you can have divine life flowing through you, which drives your life from a whole different source. And because of what God has given you, you can actually change. You mean be perfect, Jeff? Can I get? Probably not. Let's be honest. But we're moving in a direction where we're being driven by different desires. That somehow we draw from divine life, allowing God and his power to to guide our activities. Isn't that what we kind of, we, we really want to be able to do the right thing. I believe that. I think 99% of the people in the world want to do the right thing. We just struggle at this level of desire. And what Peter is saying, foundational, you've been given a gift, and it's from God. And, and these promises that he's given you are going to let you participate in divine life, which is going to help you change the engine that drives your life. And once once they get this, he wants them to know that, first of all. That's the building block. Now, from there, he wants them to be building on what we've received. How do they go about that? After that's true, after you understand that it's all gift, it starts with the God's grace for you, and it allows you to participate in the divine life, which changes where your desires are being fueled from. How do you build on what we have received? It doesn't mean we just sit around passively and wait for everything to end. And this has often gotten skewed in churches, especially these verses, right? Where it talks about add to your faith goodness and the goodness, uh, all those things that it keeps adding. It's gotten skewed around in churches where it's become a, a thing that we have to do to get the gift. We have to make sure we're doing all these things so that, that God will be pleased with us, so that we'll have the power of God in our life. But what Peter's saying is exactly the opposite. This has happened. It's done. You're building on this. And now... On top of this, what you want to build is, are, are, are these actions. There's, there's a, a couple of phrases, a guy named Dallas Willard. Um, I, I heard him years ago, and they've stuck in my head, and they've been very helpful for me. And, and I think they're helpful as we look at this passage. And one is the difference between effort and earning. Well, when we often read this, in order to be a good Christian, to be a Christian, or at least a good Christian, I have to do these things. I have to add to my uh, my. Uh, let me find the verse. Add to my faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly love or mutual affection and to mutual affection love. I have to do that to be a good Christian. And that, that's where we, it's like we're earning. We've, we've gotten focused instead of the gift that we've received that's going to transform us, we've, we've focused in on our actions and what we are going to do to get the gift. That's, that's earning. Now, now we, we don't do earning in the Christian faith. Once you come to Jesus, he even says at the end, you've forgotten you've been cleansed from your past sins. You guys have forgotten. If you don't do these things, if, it, if it's not flowing out of your life, you've missed the whole point, that the gift comes first. But, but we, we receive this promise and gift of God so that we participate in the divine nature, which enables us to start fueling our life from different desires, and we add to faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. It's because these things are already true that we can apply the effort, not the earning, but the effort to growing into Christ-likeness. The same pattern is found in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10, which a lot of us, if you've been around the church for a while, you've heard this verse forever. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Only, there's no earning there. 
It's all settled. But then if you continue on, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's, it's not earning. It's effort applied to the gift that we've received. It's working with what God has already done. And we often slip, especially when we're trying to earn. If our life is based on earning God's favor and always getting it right and doing the right thing so God will be happy or it will be a success, whatever, it, it, we, always, we always slip. Can I get an amen on that, right? We always fail. Anybody that doesn't fail is lying to you. We always fail. And, and if, if it's all about earning, that failure leads us to shame and guilt and eventually will lead us to give up trying altogether. That's, that's the path that that goes. Because we can never earn it, but we can put in effort. We can work with what God has already done. A second phrase from Dallas Willard. He, he, he said, you need to have a focus on training versus trying. Training versus trying. And, and it, it says, make every effort to add to your, your life, these, to your faith, goodness, and so on and so on. Make it, and it literally means to give to your faith. Make every effort to give your faith goodness, and, and it goes through the whole, to goodness knowledge, and knowledge self-control, and so on and so on. The point is, apart from Christ, when our lives were driven by what verse 4 calls the evil desires of the world, we moved in a different direction, Right? And now that something has fundamentally changed in our nature, we have to begin to undo those habits in our life. We have to train instead of trying. Now, it might surprise you, but I have a basketball coaching analogy for this. We might even have a basketball season this year, so who knows? But I'm, I'm breaking you in, right? Once, once I do tryouts and you make the team and you're on my team, you are on my team. You don't have to get on the team every practice. But it does not mean that your habits, as far as basketball, are, are going to make us an effective team. Right? And the same is what Peter's saying here is you've been given the gift. You're, you're in the family. You're participating in the divine nature. The life of God is flowing through you. So now let's, let's start shedding, working to shed those old habits. The problem is most of the time those old habits pop up is in the moment. Right? How many of you have done something that you regretted and you weren't planning to do it when you went into the situation, but the situation just did it, and you said that or did that before you even thought. It's because you're, you're functioning from a habit level. And so one of the things that, that we do, one of the ways that we add effort, make every effort to add these things to our life, um, Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales, rather train yourself to be godly. See, what, what, one of the things is in that moment when the temptation comes, we're just going to react out of habit. So what we have to do, instead of the moment, we have to train outside the moment. Let me explain a little bit about this. We, that's why we have four commitments of worship, relationship, learning, and mission, because that trains us in the things that are important. So when the temptation comes, all of a sudden we've, we've trained new habits in and we respond differently. There was a, a period of time in my life where I, I did, I, I don't right now, but I, I would fast one day a week. And you know what's weird about that was I found that fasting one day a week actually helped me not give in to temptation as much. And I, I started wondering, why, why is that happening? And I, I, I read some and other people that have had the same experience. What I learned was by fasting, all day long my body was saying, eat that, eat that, eat that. 
Oh, that looks good. Oh, you need to have that. And I was saying to my body, you don't drive the bus here. I'm not going to eat today. I've made a choice. Nothing super spiritual about it. But what I, what I realized later was I was actually training my body not to respond to my urges, but to respond to what I was telling it to do. So in that moment of temptation, all of a sudden, I had developed a little, I had trained a little skill to be able to say, no, we're not going to do that. It's funny because I didn't feel like I was doing anything greatly spiritual. I didn't have these big rapturous visions when I was fasting, maybe a vision of chocolate cake. But other than that, no other visions. But, but in the moment, what that had done is trained me to do differently. And, you know, let me give you an example. Are you a person that says things and regrets that you've said them? You, after a conversation, you're like, oh, I can't believe I, I said that. I can't believe I, I should just shut up. Well, guess what? You can, you can off the spot, you can come over here and practice not, go for a day and don't say anything. Or sit in a conversation and try to be quiet. And guess what you're doing? You're training your body not to always shoot off at your mouth. It, it's, it's training versus trying. It's, it's, it's prepping before the moment comes. That's how we make every effort to add to our faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control. We're working with God beforehand as we draw from his nature, so that in the moment of temptation, our body is accustomed to a different way of living. And, and he goes to talk about the fruits that flow from the effort, right? That when we participate in the divine life, when we live from that place, certain things can follow. Just like in John 15, 5, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. That's that whole idea of participating in the divine nature. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And, and they really make sense. Add to your faith what you know to be true, goodness, the manifestation of that, right? You know people that, that have beliefs but aren't very good in the way they aren't very kind. And add to your goodness, knowledge. Now, this is a different word. More on that in a minute. But, but, but knowledge, it's, it's great to believe and it's great to be good, but you also need to know things, right? You need to learn. You, need, you don't need to be stupid. But funny what follows knowledge is self-control because usually when you get a lot of knowledge, what, you're, you're in charge. You're, all of a sudden, the ego gets puffed up and you need that self-control to rein it in. To self-control perseverance because you get tired of reining yourself in. Life is so daily, right? It's just this process of building and to perseverance godliness. That, that adding, looking like who, who God is and to God in his brotherly kindness because that is the essence of his nature and then it spells it out even more specifically, love. In fact, in Colossians 3 has a similar list and at the end of that list of virtues, it says, and over all these things put on love which binds them together. Once again, this is effort. This isn't earning. This isn't to get God to be happy with you. This is to be able to surrender to that divine life coming in you. And that's what Peter wants from these last words. He wants us and his listeners to be living into these great and precious promises. So how do we do that? How do we adopt that into our life? How do we make sure our effort doesn't slide into earning? How do we train off the spot so that in the moment we can actually live as a reflection of Jesus? Well, here I'll just wrap it up with this. I wrap it up sounds short. I'm not quite done yet, so don't get too ready to leave. Uh, first idea is this, it all starts with the gift. It all starts with the gift. We have to come back there. This is Peter, whose story prior to the cross was always trying to do what he needed to do. I will stand there. I will not deny you. Right? And then he crashed. He crashed. He failed miserably, horribly, three times. 
He denied he even knew Jesus. And yet Jesus reinstated him. Remember that story when Jesus took a walk with him? Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? And Jesus reinstated him. And all of a sudden, there's a shift from Peter trying to do the best he can, applying all, all that he can do to earn it, to realizing that God loves him even in his failures and still calls him even in his failures. And Peter begins to see it's not about what he has to offer God. It's about accepting the gift that God's given to him. And this will probably be on a plaque somewhere because this verse, I think I've, every sermon flows out of Titus 2, 11 to 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God, the gift of God, his love for us. And what does it do? It, the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's, it's the gift that teaches you to say no. It's not your hard work. For the knowledge of God, for the, 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 everything that we know has showed up and it teaches us, no, the knowledge of God, it's, it's the gift, it's the grace of God, the love, the gift, what you've received from him. And I, I say this a lot, but our own failures stem often more from a lack of letting the love of God penetrate to our deepest need than they do from us not working hard enough. And, and we think, I'll just try harder. I'll get better. And the point is, it's got to start with the gift of God. You've got to let God, God's grace and love and mercy come to you where you are in your brokenness. That's why he says in verse 1, to those who through the righteousness of Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. He starts with the gift. You've gotten this. Again in verse 5, his divine power has given us, past tense, Everything we need starts with the gift. And because of this amazing gift, we become receptacles for divine life, containers. And I think, like I say, this is the hardest concept for us to grasp, that somehow divine life flows through the Trinity from God to God, and then it flows into us. And I mentioned earlier our, our individualistic natures and the way we think of ourselves as individuals. But you read the scripture, and it says we are the body of Christ and we belong to each other. There's a connection that is deeper. We, we, we feel that. I feel that with my wife, with my daughters. There's a deeper connection than just us being two individuals in a room. And that's what he's saying here. That, that as we open our lives to God and receive the gift, we become these containers that divine life flows through. Jesus prayed in John 17. I've come back to this the last several weeks too. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those at Grace Baptist Church or in Hope BC, that's an edit, who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. See, we, we read being one as, okay, we're going to agree. We agree to our doctrinal statements, or we, we, we agree and we're one on this idea. But this is bigger than that. This is, God says, I want them to be one like, like the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. I want them to, to be connected, the life to be flowing through all of us. And it, it comes back to that word knowledge. I told you I'd get back to that. The first time he uses knowledge in verse 3, 
His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge. It's the word epigenosko. Gnosko is the word for knowledge. That's what he uses in verse 6, where he says, uh, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control. That's gnosko. That's a shorter word. Epigenosko is the knowledge up at the top. Now, we translate them both knowledge and English, but they mean different things. Epi is a, a pronoun that means on, at, or over, or upon. And what he's actually saying here is, is this is a deeper knowledge through our knowledge of him. You remember I said it's relational knowledge? Paul does a, a great job in a verse you know, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, of kind of showing the difference between these two. He says, now we see, but in a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know, gnosko, that's that second word, in part. Then I shall know fully, epigonosko, even as I am fully known, epigonosko. Right? There's this difference between knowing about something and actually living in relationship with something or in someone. My, I used to laugh at my father-in-law who would, he was a road builder uh, for, for the logging company and the engineers, he, always, he would always say he wanted to throw them off the ridge because they came out of their head knowledge and they knew how to build a road, but my father-in-law knew how to build a road, right? And, and, and they would tell him to do things and he'd say, you can't do that, can't do that, it's not going to work. And they would say, no, no, it'll work, all the calculations work out fine. And he would go up there and they would try to do it and it wouldn't work because they gnoscoed how to build a road. But my father-in-law epigenoscoed how to build a road because he'd been doing it all his life, right? That's the whole difference in there. It, it's, um, <laughs> it's a deeper relational aspect with the thing being known. Jonathan Edwards said, it's one thing to believe that honey is sweet. You can believe it with certainty. Perhaps somebody's told you that honey is sweet and you know it's sweet and you've seen people put it on the, in their tea and you know that. But he said, it's actually another thing to actually taste the sweetness of honey. The sense of the honey's sweetness on the tongue brings a fuller knowledge of honey than any rational deduction. And what, what, what Peter's saying here is, you can taste God through your knowledge of him. It's more than knowing about him. It's an experience of that divine life. Remember the end of Job? Job complains, complains for good reason, and God kind of just says, listen, do you, know, do you know what you're talking about? And at the end, Job says in Job 42.5, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I mean, it's not Greek in there, it's, it's Hebrew, but I, I had gnoscoed you, I'd heard about you, now I know you, different thing. So that, that's, that's one of the things we have to realize. We become these receptacles for divine life by knowing God, and then our effort is a choice to surrender to that. What we start to do is train ourselves to surrender to that divine presence in and through us, not to work against it, to surrender to what God is doing. Paul writes about it in Ephesians 4. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, to take it off, make a choice, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. See, there's this choice we make to surrender to God's living in us. Same thing in Philippians. Paul writes, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will and to act according to your purpose. You work it out because it's God working in you. There's a gift that's been given to you. Now participate with that. 
Start with the gift, realize. And wh why don't we do that? Why don't we just, Jeff, you make it sound easy, like it's just a matter of changing your behavior. Why don't we do it? I think ultimately it's because we're afraid. And that comes back to something that start. We, we're afraid that what God wants for us is not what we want for us. We're afraid that God's going to make our life harder and not easier. We're scared that what he's offering is not the best for us. We're scared to surrender. And so as we hold to the control, we're going to do it our way, we fail. And guess what that does? Our failures bring us back to the gift. Our failures bring us back to the gift. That's why, I'll just be really blunt, that's why when you fail, the enemy, the devil, would like you to focus on that failure and not focus on the gift that you've been given in grace. The, the failure should drive you back to the gift because it's the gift that's going to change your behavior in the long run. Ephesians 2, we said that. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You see, we see our failures. We, we, we want to hide them. We want to run away. We don't want people to know about those things. And yet, that's what should drive us right back to the gift. They, they, they begin to transform us because as you fail and you go to God with your failure, guess what? You move into this sense of epigonosco, of knowing God who loves you even in your failure. And this begins the, the process of us applying effort towards surrender to God, which changes our behavior over time. You know, you've been wondering, are we going to drink Kool-Aid today? Is that what you've been wondering? Um, let's just imagine this is your life, this cup, Right? And, and you want to do the right thing, but over and over you fail. You just, there, there's something happens, and you just fail. And, and the tendency is when your life gets full of holes and broken spots, the tendency is to hide it, stick it in your pocket, don't let anybody see it, or you hold your cup like this so that nobody sees what's going on. And the reality is at that moment, when your life is like this with holes all through it, you need to run to the gift, right? You need to go back and let the divine life pour into you because guess what happens? the holes that pour it out into everything else, right? That's the reality. Instead of running away, we need to be filled with the divine life. And in our broken spots, that's where, the, that's where the life spills out, all over everybody else. But our tendency is to take our cup and run and hide. But we've got to come back to the gift, because that's what Peter says. That's the first thing you guys have to know. It's the righteousness of Jesus that has given you this. That's given you this precious faith. And that faith comes along with these promises that if you can hold on to them, you're actually going to be filled with this blue water. You're going to have this divine life. And yeah, you'll make mistakes, but, but, but that's how it spills out on everybody else. And so when you find those broken places, run back to the grace of God. You'll get to know him in a deeper way. You'll get to know him in a deep, deep way. That's how our kids learn that we love them, by failure and still coming home and still being loved. And they realize this is a safe, that's what we are called to do as believers. Come back to the source. Come back to the place where the divine life flows and let it fill you up. Let's pray. God, we, we get it so mixed up and we try so hard and we make mistakes and we're ashamed and we feel filled with guilt. And in, in and of itself, if that will drive us back to you, that's a gift. But please help us to, to take our mistakes and to return to where we need to be, to come back to the gift that you have given us by your righteousness, to the forgiveness and grace and mercy that you've given us, to the, the state of being a part of your family, of being loved, of actually 
whatever it means, to participate in the divine nature, to share in the life that you share among yourself in the Trinity. We want to do that. We don't, it seems so foreign to our way of thinking. But help us to understand what you mean when you pray for us to be one. Help us to not run away and hide, but to return to you, seeking mercy and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't always give homework, but sometimes I do. This is what I would like you to do. When, when you have had that moment, when you failed, when you feel like I'm, I've blown it, I can't do it anymore, take, take an index card and write this verse. This verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Take that, write it on a card. When you have that moment where you fall, pull that card out and just say, okay, God, here I am. <laughs> this is what you said that you have given me everything I need, and I'm just going to sit here and receive from you. And you may feel something, you may not. I'm not saying you're going to get this big, woo okay, life has changed forever. But if you have a habit of when you fail, running back to the source and claiming this great and precious promise that somehow God has made it possible for divine life to flow through you, you do that, and before you know it, you'll be making every effort to add to your faith goodness and the goodness knowledge and the knowledge. It, it'll happen. Because that's what divine life does. That's what tying into divine does. So in that moment of, you clear on your homework, in that moment of failure, don't run away. Run toward. Claim that promise. That's my prayer for you this week. Amen.